My name's Steve Beatty. Um, amongst other things, um, I'm one of the founders of Melt Studios. It's one of the founders of this conference series. Um, scarily enough, I figured out that my first job was 30 years ago this year. Um, so I've, I've been doing work for quite some time. Um, today I'm going to talk about an element of design research and that, that idea of understanding problems and understanding contexts and environments, um, particular to organisations. I'm going to touch on this area of organisational tension. I'll explain what that is and why it's important. Um, a little bit... There we go. Okay. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of where I live and work. So I live and work on the lands of the Wongal uh, clan of the Eora Nation in Sydney on the foreshore of the Parramatta River on the southern side of the Parramatta River in the area known as either Canada Bay or the Inner West, uh, if you're familiar with that part of Sydney. Um, it is beautiful in the morning. It is really, really gorgeous in the morning. It's my favourite part of the day other than sunset. Um, when the sun comes through the trees in the parks and across the water, it's absolutely stunning. So when I think about um, the, the country that I relate to, I grew up in southwest Sydney, but for the last 34 years, um, this, has been, this has been where I am. So when I want to re relax, when I want to refresh, when I want to think, um, this is the kind of place that you'll find me. So I'd like to pay my respects to um, the elders past, present and emerging um, of the Wongu clan of the Eora Nation, uh, pay my respects um, and recognise their continued custodianship of the land uh, on which I live and work every day. Um, I was born and bred in Sydney, um, and I, I mean that literally, I'm 52. Um, I've lived two years outside of Sydney. When I was six months old, my family moved to Queensland. Um, funny story, my dad moved to Queensland, um, and then my mum moved to Queensland about six months later and found him. Um, had, had us with him. Um, uh, we were there for about two years, um, living in um, cane country. So for those two years, our house backed onto a cane farm. Um, and, you know, every season when they burnt the cane fields, our house would get invaded by the snakes and the rats running away from the burning cane. Um, First time that happened, Mum was a little bit freaked out. Mum's from Sydney as well. Um, Dad's from far north Queensland. Um, so that was fine for him. Uh, second time it happened, Mum was hanging washing on the line and this big ass black snake ran across her feet while she was up hanging clothes on the line and that was it. She was done moving back to Sydney. Um, been here ever since. Uh, the other thing that um, that says though is that I was born in 1971, um, 26 years after the First World War, it's been 52 years to now. So I was born closer to the Second World War than we are today to when I was born, twice as close, in fact. Um, so in terms of the span of my life, um, it's been interesting to see how things have shifted along the way um, and the sort of work that I do today came about by and large because for most of that period of my life, on pretty much any measure that you choose, 
things have gotten worse. With, with some exceptions, and those exceptions tend to be GDP related. But on most environmental grounds, on a whole range of other, um, you know, social and, and, and environmental um, grounds, things have, things have gotten worse since the 70s. Um, we're more polluted, we produce more plastics, we produce more waste generally, the air quality is worse, carbon emissions are higher, temperatures are worse, like all of that kind of thing. Um, and I'm determined that by the time I die, we'll have turned a corner and things will be improving. And that's basically what I'm about. I want to make sure that in the next 50 years, assuming that I'm only midlife, um, and I'm not kidding myself, but um, I want to make sure that we actually turn it around. So my kids, and I have four, um, that my kids inherit something better than where we are right now. That's basically what we're, what we're aiming for. Um, as part of that, I founded a design firm, Melt Studios, in 2009. Um, that's, that's my arm in the photo. Uh, I'm pretty committed to the company. Um, that's me on the right, if you can't tell. But um, we are uh, a strategic design firm. We work uh, across most industries that deal in services um, and strategic problems. We work with government, commercial entities, you name it. Um, for the last two years, I've been involved in the design of railway stations um, and the surrounding precincts in, in amongst other bits and pieces. Um, but that's been a principal focus of my work is, is the public transport infrastructure. Last year, we were awarded Design Team of the Year by the Good Design Awards, which was a pretty proud moment. Um, and it, it recognised the body of work that we've built up over the, the 13 years that we've been around. Um, pretty proud of that. And you can see um, my business partners and the lady in the middle is also my wife, which I'm pretty happy about. So. All right. Um, quick side story. Um, when I'm out in the world, um, I'm a, a, a reasonably observant person because of the nature of the work that we do, so I keep my eye out for different bits and pieces. Um, and I was recently uh, fortunate enough to be in um, France. I was in Paris. And they have this, in this cafe that we went to for breakfast one morning, they have this magic cupboard. And it looks unassuming but it's a magic cupboard. Um, and how it works is, the guy running the cafe, when he needs things, he opens the cupboard and he yells at it in French. <laughs> and then on the other side of the cafe, there's a dumb waiter, um, and a, a few seconds later, the thing that he asked for appears. And it's magical. I watched him a few times and he yelled at the cupboard, he opened it, he yelled at it, and then the stuff came out of the dumbwaiter. It seems like a pretty simple interaction. I'm not sure of the technology that, you, that they use, um, but it worked every time flawlessly. It was awesome. Really, really good. Anyway, um, I'd love them. I've not seen these in Australia, but hopefully we can get some um, sent over from France. We're not getting subs from them anymore, as we've talked about this morning. We're getting American ones, but maybe we can get some French magic cupboards. All right, here's what we are going to talk about, funny stories aside. Um, 
when we go about and, and conduct design research, one of the key bits of um, activity, at least like my work, tends to involve understanding the organisation or the institution or the department um, that delivers a service or um, produces something out into the world. I want to talk about what we look for when we undertake that work and the sorts of things, um, you know, when we conduct stakeholder research, what, what are we actually trying to achieve with that? Pretty sure we all know what we're after when we talk to um, customers and people who are out in the world, outside the organisation, but what about when we talk to the staff and the internal stakeholders, what are we after? One of the things that I want to drill into is this notion of attention. Um, some of the most powerful design innovations come about when we resolve tensions that exist either with people or with the organisations themselves. Um, and then I want to talk about what an organisational tension looks like. We know what a personal tension feels like, um, you know, where we're frustrated by circumstance or it's difficult to do a thing that we want to do, um, we've got to work around stuff, this kind of thing. But what does that look like at an organisational level? And then I want to go into a case study from the State Library of Victoria. Um, who's been to the State Library of Victoria? Awesome awesome institution. Uh, I think approaching its 160th anniversary next year. Um, really, really lovely building and we did some work for them to redesign their service model um, back in 2014-15. Um, and part of that work was to understand what was happening within the institution um, and then in looking at the new service model that we might put in place, so how is service delivered, how are staff rostered, how are roles defined, this kind of thing, to then look at um, what, what are we trying to fix, essentially, you know, in, in uh, designing a new way of delivering service, what are we trying to achieve with that? Um, and this, this idea of well, what were the sum of those tensions? And then we'll recap and then we'll do a Q&A and then you can all go home for the day. That's, that's where we're going. All right. What do we mean by tensions? Let's get started. Um, so, sorry, understanding organisations first. So we go about this, um, this activity, and I think we're probably familiar with the idea of stakeholder research. Fair enough. Um, we talk to employees, we talk to the executive. Um, it, it looks a lot like customer research, so the sorts of things that we've been hearing about today. Um, contextual inquiry, observational research, in-depth interviews, that kind of stuff. The nature of the questions that we ask are often different. So the sorts of questions that I might ask um, an executive within an, an institution, a director or a general manager or the departmental secretary or whoever it might be, um, will be different than the sorts of questions that I ask a consumer. But what we're trying to understand are a few different things. And, and one is that, um, I, the why of it is that organisations are the backdrop against which a service gets delivered. So from the outside looking in, we want to understand that context. Um, it's also the context within which employees interact with customers. So we want to understand the systems, we want to understand the environments within which they act, how the website works, how the mobile app works, how the contact centre works, whether they have those things, whether there's a branch that you can walk into or you know, uh, a store that, that you walk into, that kind of thing. We want to we know each of those things and understand how they work. 
Um, and it's also really important, obviously, when the thing that we're designing is the organisation itself. So if, if what we're looking to do is change the way the organisation works, how it operates, how they communicate with one another, um, we've done projects where we look at how decisions get made within a bank. Um, you know, what evidence do they use? What's the actual decision-making criteria? Who gets involved? How do they escalate decisions? How do they break ties? Um, you know, if three people are making a decision and two agree and one doesn't, is that okay? Or do they need consensus? Um, so when we, when we go through that process, these are the sorts of things that we're trying to understand. Um, we're also looking for four different things. So what comes out of those questions? What comes out of that exercise of trying to make sense of what the organisation is doing and how it's doing it? The first of those is domain knowledge. Now, Hussain talked about that this morning in the context of um, expert users. So we go into these environments, and I, I don't know about you, but I, I end up in um, projects where I know very little about the domain necessarily. Two years ago when I started on this project designing train stations and, and precincts, I knew very little about the architecture, the engineering, construction methods, urban planning, landscape architecture, you know, transport planning, a whole range of things. I just didn't really have a good handle on it. So the sorts of questions that we go in and ask, part of it is simply help me understand what the hell it is we're going to be working on. Um, and that then helps subsequently identify what's important, what's significant, so that when you say something in, in an interview, I can go, hang on a minute, I need to know more about that, or actually I can just move on. I, I understand the significance of that. I'm, I'm not as reliant on others to pick up on certain things. It also helps then subsequently, you've got some credibility with people when you ask a follow-up question you're only asking the follow-up question rather than the complete newbie question. So it provides enough context that you can actually have more meaningful conversation. And as I say, Hussain touched on that kind of thing this morning. A really big one though is, what are the definitions of success? And the thing about organisations is that different teams within the organisation don't have the same definition of what success looks like. So the sales team doesn't have the same definition of success as, say, the contact centre. Um, and the product team doesn't necessarily have the same definition of success as the sales team. Um, and understanding what those things are and being able to articulate them and then potentially being able to measure them and being able to trace them and being able to understand what influences each of those things are also then useful organisational dynamics to understand. The third one, and, and this will come up a lot, is people start talking about frustrations that they've had. Oh, like, why do we keep having these workshops when nothing ever changes? We tried that thing in the past, but it didn't work. Um, you know, management wants us to do this thing, but they keep cutting our, our staffing levels. You know, how are we meant to keep quality or how are we meant to bring on new customers when we don't have the staff? And that that starts to tell us about these tensions. And tensions will often arise when two things are competing for priority. As an example, quality versus sales growth. 
So if I've got more and more customers, how do I ensure that we, we maintain quality? And those two things don't always go well together. Um, how do I ensure that I'm spending time with customers who need help when the volume of calls keeps going up, but staffing levels aren't keeping up with that? Um, a change in technology that hasn't been rolled out into other parts of the organisation, a new product that gets released without the right information or the right training flowing into another part of the organisation. Um, institutional change, organisational change, a change in leadership, um, a change in culture. All of those things will create shifts within the organisation um, that start to create these tensions. And when we then start to work with the organisation to change the way they work and to change their service and that kind of stuff, being aware of those tensions can be a really fruitful um, vein of insight and innovation um, when the design activity starts. I first came across this idea of, a, of attention um, reading a book by um, an innovation, the design innovation consultant by the name of Luke Williams. He was at the Parsons New School, I think, in New York at the time, but he wrote this book in 2010 called Disrupt. Uh, and it's essentially a step-by-step -step guide to um, design-led innovation. He was ex-frog design, you'd um, be familiar with and he'd left there to go and work in, in academia. Um, the book is not necessarily one that I would suggest you read and, and, and adopt and swallow wholesale, but this notion of attention and how it plays out with individuals was really quite striking and, and, and a useful one. Um, when you are undertaking design research and you're talking to people, one of the things that he calls out is this idea that Attention isn't necessarily something that people will call out for you. They won't necessarily sit there and go, oh, I've, this, is, this is the thing that I really hate. This is the thing. These are the things that people talk to you about or ask you about at the end of the, in, at the, end of the interview when you stop the tape. So what is it you're doing? You know, why are we doing this research? Why, why are you here type of thing? and you explain why you're here and they go, oh, right, huh. Yeah, I wonder if you could fix this thing because like, it's, it's not a big deal. Like, I wouldn't call it a pain point. It's not a big deal, um, but it's just, it's a niggle. It's just frustrating. It's a little thing that I would love to see cleaned up, um, but I would never call attention to it, right? Um, and so, when you go back through your transcripts, like A, you stop the tape so it's not on the transcript, so unless you take a note, you know, like you, you'll miss it. But you find that you get a lot of these things that sort of pop up that are frustrations. Um, and they come up time and time again. And the thing is, those tensions are things that people feel and they don't necessarily complain about because they've been there for a long, long time. And so, it, it feels like something that can't change or won't change. Um, and the thing about most of us and, and humans, just sort of generally, is that we tend not to complain about things that we don't expect to change. So if it's a niggle and it's not a big deal and we don't really expect anyone to listen to us, 
we probably won't complain about a lot of these things. We certainly won't sit in an interview and go, here, let me give you a list of my little complaints, right? Because we don't want to be that person anyway. Um, Luke broke them down into four types of uh, tensions, and I'll explain this first one because that quote is an, an odd one. Um, work around uh, a misalignment of values, inertia, and this tension between shoulds versus wants. Um, what do I mean by bear shaving? Okay. Um, that's a, a, a quote from Seth Godin, again, someone that you may be familiar with. Um, but uh, Seth made the comment or made the observation that in the face of climate change and a warming climate, we are more likely to shave the bears than we are to actually address fossil fuel use. Bears being hot in hotter weather, right, because of the shaggy coat. So we'll shave the bear um, and that will cool them down rather than actually transition to renewable energy. And it's this idea that we'll put up with a workaround that's not overly satisfactory. Um, I've not tried bear shaving personally, but it's not something that I'm keen to do, at least. Um, but that idea of, like, we'll work around things instead. Um, an example that I came across a few years back, I was doing some work with a financial institution in their business banking area. Um, and they had this uh, form to allow a business customer, a small business customer in particular, to apply for a business credit card. Um, it was their longest application form at over 40 pages. It was harder than getting a mortgage, even though the amount was small. Um, as you would imagine, it starts with details about who you are, your company details, trading history, um, you know, and it gets on to financials and how much you're after and collateral and a whole bunch of other stuff. But it ran to 40 pages. Um, it, as a business owner, it's a pain in the ass to fill in, you can imagine. Um, and then a lot of people got rejected. They didn't actually get the credit card. Um, and it turns out, when we were talking to people, um, there are two key criteria that you need to meet in order to even have a chance of qualifying for this credit card. You need to have been trading for at least two years and you need a turnover of at least, I think it was $250,000, something like that. Right? Um, those questions aren't asked explicitly at all on the form. They weren't listed at all um, up front. So when you went to the website and you said, I'm interested in a business credit card, it didn't say, don't even bother if you haven't been trading for two years. It said, here's the form that you need to fill in. When we went to the contact centre, because people were complaining about this thing, um, we were talking to customers. When we went to the contact centre and, and had a look at the contact centre, on all of the monitors, there were these little post-it notes. Um, when someone called to talk about it, because they would sometimes walk through it with customers. So, uh, what have you called for? I'm interested in a business credit card. Okay, have you been trading for two years? Yes. That is your turnover more than $250,000? No. Okay, don't waste your time. And that was the end of it. Like this three-second process. But nobody really thought that this thing could be changed and no one actually really like, complained about it. It was just a, an offhand comment later. Why is that form so long? And why didn't someone ask me 
earlier in the process whether or not I'd been trading for two years, like we're a new business. I could have told them that straight away and saved myself the effort. Um, and and these, these workarounds persist for an awful long time. Um, and the thing is they're, they're minor to the individual, but they scale up and aggregate up to tens of thousands of niggles. Um, which people ignore. So, like, they're worth looking at. Values alignment is one around, say, um, what, does, what does quality mean to you? So, you know, we, we each have a different threshold of what quality means. Um, as an organisation, we'll have, you know, here are our quality metrics type of thing. Um, as a customer, when we look at the production um, and the finish of, a, uh, of an object, we'll have different assessments of what good quality looks like and whether that, um, that, that fits. If that's not aligned, then again, we get this issue of tension. If um, the organisation that we're in tends to spend more energy on one thing than what we feel is important, again, we feel this tension. Um, and these things drift over time. So our expectation as a customer and our expectation as an employee is not a fixed thing. Um, and as we navigate through the world and as we engage with other things, our expectations of what we see elsewhere will also change. Um, so it's something that we need to keep on top of. And if we don't, we, we tend to drift further and further away. Um, and it, that change creates tension because it's not quite right anymore. Um, inertia is simply the idea that the longer I do something, the harder it is to change. Um, even though it's not fit for purpose, I'll keep doing it that way because that's the way I'm used to. And the last one is this idea of I know what I should do, but what I want to do is not the same thing. Um, and so that creates feelings of, of guilt and anxiety and stress and frustration. I know I need to work on my presentation, but I feel tired, so I'm going to nap instead. Um, that's not a personal story, of course. Um, but this idea that you know, what I should be doing and, and what I actually want to do are not the same thing. And so when we do design work, if we can resolve those tensions in the act of meeting whatever objective it was that we were looking to uh, do, people will respond more positively to that new design because that tension has been resolved. Just like the cathartic scene in a movie or a book this idea that that tension has been resolved, that's been building up, is now released. We feel it as the recipients of and the, the, the people engaged in a, a piece of design. Um, so that's Luke. The same things go in organisations. Organisations undergo stress. Um, and organisations undergo these points of uh, stress um, and, and tension. And again, like just to repeat what I said earlier, so two things might be competing for priority or you've got a change in one area that's not been matched by another. Um, here are some examples, right? So uh, just quickly, um, the public sector, at least at a federal level, and I think various state governments have been doing this for a number of years, imposed an efficiency dividend. The idea being that the public sector can get more efficient over time. Um, the reality being that what it meant was they simply had to uh, let go of staff, um, but continue to do the same work. Uh, what that resulted in was the hiring of external um, labour hire, so they had exactly the same number of people, it was just in a different part of the accounting. So it looked like an efficiency dividend, but was actually a waste of time from the perspective of how many people are doing the work. But the nature of those people shifted. 
So now you've got a group of you know, full-time internal people and a bunch of external people who keep rotating through. And, and that creates friction in the workplace. So that tension gets created as, a, as an offshoot of that. Um, I mentioned growth versus quality. I won't go through that again. Remote work has introduced a number of uh, tensions and we're feeling one right now in this idea of the pandemic is over and therefore we can all come back to the office because that's our culture. Our culture is that we work together in the same room. Um, but we've demonstrated through three years of actually doing it that we can work perfectly happily remotely. Um, would anyone say that their work quality has declined over the last three years as a result of working remotely? Who thinks it got better? Right? Like, and, and, and in some cases you would go, it's simply changed. You know, like, um, I, I, I can do some things that I couldn't do before and I can't do other things that I really enjoyed. Um, but there's this tension going on now between, well, what's the workplace for versus what did it used to be? Um, and it comes through um, in any number of cases. The last one I'll mention is legacy systems. The entire definition of a legacy system is one that has been around long enough to become a problem. It's now, it's, it's so well embedded and encrusted in the organisation and hooked into other things that it's really hard to change and we kind of have to put up with it. But it's a really good example. Um, I did some work a few years ago with the um, industry super funds. So we have, at the time, we had 50 or 60 industry super funds that we were working with um, and we were trying to understand the industry dynamic. Um, and one of the things that we were looking at was they were growing. They were growing in terms of the number of funds, but equally the expectation of customers. So I, I don't know about you, but as the amount of money that I have invested in super has grown over the years, I've become more interested in how that money is being utilised. Um, I'm engaging more often with my superannuation company. I'm not satisfied with an annual statement. I want, I want greater transparency around where things are being invested, how it's tracking, what my fees are and that kind of stuff. That puts a burden on them to be able to respond to that increased queries. So what does that mean? That meant for them uh, improving their systems. It meant having more staff who could respond to queries. It meant that the user experience of their systems had to be improved um, to enable people to do online inquiries and, and self-serve. A, a company like Australian Super, for example, has two million customers. If, if all of those customers or a significant portion of those customers start making frequent requests, they can't handle it with a call centre. So you've got to put that stuff into technology to allow a, a degree of self-service um, and if you don't want a bad user experience to just trigger a different type of phone call, um, then it's got to be a good one. It's a whole other skill set. So large super funds in particular had to become much better at data management, much better at IT, much better at contact centres. Their communication skills had to get better. Their marketing had to get better. A lot of those skills weren't available in the industry super fund um, sector. They had to come from outside the industry. So 
today were going to banks, uh, retail super funds, they were going to marketing um, departments of other types of organisations and bringing people in. But the sorts of people who work in a bank are not culturally aligned, they found, with the sorts of people who would work in an industry super fund. As one person described it to me, like, who had come from outside in to the super fund, I didn't really anticipate the degree of red flag waving that was going to go on inside this super fund. And by that they meant, you know, union act activism. They weren't expecting that kind of um, socialist vibe to, per, um, to pervade the institution. So you've got this cultural clash. So all of those tensions are coming from, you know, like just trends in the industry that are going on over time. Um, another example, a quick one, um, years ago I did work with Panasonic um, when they were implementing their first online sales systems. So their first move into electronic commerce. Um, and this was like up until that point, Panasonic in this country imported things from overseas. They didn't uh, manufacture anything except for plasma TVs. They had a facility out west of Sydney and Penrith where they actually manufactured plasma TVs. Kind of random, but they, they did. Um, Mostly, though, they got container loads of consumer electronics, um, you know, turntables, TVs, whatever, imported them into Australia, put them into their warehouse. Harvey Norman would call up and say, I need a thousand televisions. So they'd load up a big truck, send it to Harvey Norman's warehouse and invoice them for it. You go online, you might still sell a thousand TVs, but they're to a thousand different people. And that's a whole other exercise in both warehousing, sales, support, and logistics. So even though the volume, the dollar volume of sales didn't change, for the institution itself, like for the company, it was a massive change in terms of how they actually had to operate. Um, and, and, and really, really uh, sort of flowed right through the organisation. It sounded like a small change. I remember the meeting uh, when, when they talked about it and I was sitting there going, no, 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 I have questions. Um, and it was really interesting to see the way it subsequently rippled through the organisation. But each of those flow-on effects was something that they really, really struggled with. All right, let's talk about the State Library of Victoria. Um, Big library, 150 years old at the time. Um, that's the Latrobe Reading Room. It's a gorgeous space if you've never been. Um, it's, it's, it's lovely. It's one of the most beautiful public libraries in the world. Um, and, and that's not me talking. That's, you know, TripAdvisor's list of the top 50 libraries in the world. You'll see photos of this one in there somewhere. Um, it really is a beautiful room. For most of its history, the State Library of Victoria was a closed research library. Um, its mandate is to preserve the cultural heritage of the state of Victoria and make that available to the people of Victoria. Okay, so lots of books, lots of journals, um, explorer diaries from the 1830s, every issue of the age that's ever been printed every issue of the Australian that's ever been printed. Um, and it has some really interesting things to it. I, I, I had the opportunity to go and see 
all of the volumes, like all of the um, print editions of the age from the very first edition that was printed all the way through. And, you know, like these yellowing pages of um, newspaper print stacked on top of one another in a big warehouse. And then you get to the Second World War and the colour of the paper changes. And I, why? Why does the paper change? Because the chemical that they used was needed to make ammunition. So they couldn't treat the paper in the same way. So it ended up for a three year period being a different color to the rest of the newspapers that have been printed for 180 years. And it was just sort of there as you could see it. Um, about 10 years before we worked with them though, the library shifted from being a research library where you could go through rare books and, and, and old materials and journals and all the rest of it. Um, they've got, they, they keep Ned Kelly's armor, if you're interested, um, that's where to find it. But they changed to an open library. It was open to the public, anyone could walk in. Anyone was able to now sort of go in and sit down at these desks and, and work. And lots of people did. Um, I think the library gets close to, at least at the time we were working with them, they were getting close to 2 million visitors per year versus when they were a research library, it would have been thousands. So the magnitude of visitors had gone, um, you know, like through the roof, quite literally 10, 100 times more visitors than they would have had previously. They were still grappling with that change. Another thing that had been happening was that the state government had put in place, again, this sort of notion of a, um, uh, an efficiency dividend, but essentially their funding had been ratcheting down each year. They were losing a, a little bit of money each year and they were being asked to make that money up in other ways. Fair enough. Um, not really, but you know, okay, that's, that's what was going on. Um, and so they were running exhibitions. Um, public exhibitions, visiting exhibitions from other parts of the world, you know, other library collections would come and display. Some of these you'd buy tickets for, that kind of thing, and they made a little bit of extra money along the way, and they were narrowing that gap. Um, that was something else that was going on. Another thing that was obviously happening is that the library has hundreds of thousands of books, but increasingly the volume of new books and the mandate for uh, State Library of Victoria is that every volume published in Victoria needs to be kept. So if you publish it here, it needs to be there. Well, by 2014, a good portion of new books were being published in electronic form only. So it wasn't a book that was ending up here. It was an EPUB, a PDF. So how do we store those? And, and what does preserving that look like indefinitely into the future. It's not about putting it in a humidity controlled, temperature controlled, you know, vermin controlled environment. It's something else entirely. Better IT systems, online cataloging, all sorts of stuff. What about blog posts? If I publish a blog post in Victoria, does that have to be kept? That was actually a point of discussion when we were working with them. And the answer was, we don't know, but maybe. Maybe. So all of this was happening at the same time. The last thing that was happening is that, um, and this is a lovely story um, and, and feels very Victorian, but in 1974, 
the library had decided they were going to shift away from their paper-based index cards um, for their catalogue to an electronic system. Um, it was a big program, it was a difficult program, and they didn't have anybody who really understood it. They didn't have the in-house capability to tackle it. Um, across the road from the library is RMIT, and RMIT has a really good program in library science, and they were turning out students who understood this stuff. So someone from the State Library wandered across the road, um, visited the graduating class of 1974 and said, would you like jobs? <laughs> and as you might imagine, given you know, the place that you're working in, they all went, yes, we would love that. 40 years later, when I'm visiting the library, a lot of them are still there. A lot of the ones who haven't retired or left the industry or passed away are still working there. Now what that does, you, it means that you've got this really heavily entrenched culture within a very important cadre of people within the organisation. Research librarians obviously in an organisation like this hold a lot of power, a lot of institutional knowledge, a lot of cultural knowledge that's critical to the way in which the library works, they're very important and their opinions are important and here we are going through these sort of massive changes in terms of funding and the rest of it. So we arrived at these four tensions that were going on. Um, the shift from a research library to an open library. Okay, so that was happening but what did it mean? It meant that you needed staff who could welcome visitors. It meant that you had a whole bunch of people who only came into the library and asked you one of two questions. Where are the bathrooms? Where can I keep my bag? They weren't interested in the history of Ned Kelly or a copy of Stuart's um, diaries as he went into the interior of Australia. They weren't interested in the report from the government in 1872 into the, you know, it, they just didn't care. They were in there to look around that reading room, um, get out of the heat, go to the bathroom and continue on their journey. 1.8 million people visited the library. 60% of all questions asked of staff when I was there were those two questions. Where's the bathroom? Where can I keep my bag? And the people who were asking, who were being asked to answer those questions, because that's the staff that they had, was a research librarian who'd been there for 40 years. Where are the bathrooms? Excuse me, where are the bathrooms? Excuse me, where are the bathrooms? Can I take my bag in here? Am I allowed to eat in here? No, no, no. I so they were getting really, really frustrated. They felt that their work was being undervalued. They were rotating through. Um, the front desk, so they didn't, they didn't have the same people there all the time. It was seen as a burden and an imposition. It felt demeaning to them because it's a low value work. Um, and, it, and it was relative to what they had been doing not so long ago. Um, the shift towards that partial self-funding model actually felt like a real betrayal of their basic principle, which is that their role was to present the cultural history of Victoria back to Victorians, and nowhere does it say if you can afford to pay for it. And so the idea that they were running paid exhibits and needed the money created this real crisis in a lot of these people. Like fundamentally, they just didn't believe that that's what they should be doing, and at the same time recognised that they didn't have the money to not do it. 
The shift to digital collections meant that people who'd spent a lifetime protecting and preserving and looking after books and knowing where to find them and knowing two authors who had related ideas now needed to run a database search. And that was basically their job done. Point someone to a computer and say, Google it. You know, like that, and, and again, that felt like a huge devaluation of their job. Um, and all of these things were happening at the same time. And the last one was this way, you know, this idea that if they weren't looking after books, then what were they doing? You know, if they didn't have that attachment to that cultural history, a really tangible cultural history, what, like, really what were they there for? By recognising these things, and one of the key things that we were able to do was subsequently play this back to them. So this isn't something that we kept to ourselves, this is something that we, we presented back to them. It wasn't something that they had asked for. It really wasn't part of the brief that we had been given necessarily, but we felt that it was critical in order to help drive the design process is for them to be able to recognise why they were feeling anxious when they showed up to work why they felt sick in their stomach when they were on the front desk answering customer inquiries. You know, like pointing to the bathrooms and that kind of stuff. And the result was, for the first time, a lot of staff at the library felt like they were being listened to. That it wasn't a complaint to actually raise some of this stuff. That the, and, and it wasn't because we were listening, it's because the institution brought us in to have these conversations and to ask these questions and to go through this process. So it's not like, thank God you're here, Steve. It was more a change in leadership within the institution was now asking these questions and we were now in a position where we could talk about how some of this stuff was making us feel in a way that would actually lead potentially to change. It also meant that when we went through the process, the design process that followed on from this, people trusted that we were looking out for them rather than that we were going to try and like, make things worse. Um, and, and they were heavily involved in the design process. I think at the end of this piece of work, State Library has around 350 staff. I think we directly engaged with about 180, 190 staff um, through the course of the process. So they were well and truly able to get involved. Um, but simply recognising that these tensions existed and what it meant for the organisation and how the organisation's funding strategy, for example, was impacting on staff, what ultimately came out of this work was a real sense of relief for a lot of people. Um, and the changes that the organisation has subsequently worked through and, and continues to work through in, in some case today um, has become something that they're quite proud of um, and that they're, you know, like they're actually happy to be there and working again, whereas at the time they really felt like, I, I, I want to leave, you know, I'm, I'm just, I don't like what we're becoming. Um, and that, that really helped to just be quite explicit about it. All right, by understanding organisations and the dynamics in which they work, um, and some of what we're talking about are you know, system dynamics. So when, these, when we see these tensions, it's because um, it's a sign that a feedback loop is working um, 
you know, you've got a sort of a positive loop and then a negative reinforcing loop that makes it worse. Um, so you grow, but the quality declines, which means morale drops and complaints increase, right? Like you've got these cycles that are going on. So understanding the organization provides a really important context. The stress helps us identify, or the tensions help us identify points of stress in both individuals and organizations. And when, through our design work, we can relieve that tension to go through that process of sort of cathartic resolution through design, people feel it and they see the value of it. Um, and then just, you know, that, that organisational tension can be the, the, the result of a range of different things and every organisation will be different, but you'll see patterns in the way that those things are coming out um, and the effect that they have. Thank you. <laughs>